Revelation chapter 2, and starting at verse number 1. <clears throat> Revelation 2 and verse 1. Revelation 2 and 1, the Bible says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patience and endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But this I have against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, where you are, have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Father, we thank you this morning for your word, and we pray that its power will reach into our hearts, touch and change and transform us, God. Make us more like you. And, and help us to hear what you have to say. Let your spirit speak this morning. And let the church hear what the spirit of God has to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. The book of Revelation is a one of those books. It's either very intimidating to some because it's filled with lots of images. And uh, not always the bedtime reading kind of images, you know. Uh, bears with big claws and bones in their mouth and leopards with foreheads and uh, lions with the wings of eagles. It kind of becomes the, the fodder for nightmares, really, uh, if you read the book of Revelation because there's so much imagery in it and oftentimes we read the book of Revelation as though it's a crystal ball of the future. And to some extent, there is prophecy. There, there is, it is a book of prophecy. There's lots of prophetic imagery speaking of things that have, have yet to come. In fact, the opening verses of the book of Revelation give us a clue as to what the book is all about. And, and it's so important when you read Scripture to slow down and, and read it for what it's saying and try to take off the glasses that you put on when you read the Bible. And this, the what I mean by the glasses, we all have uh, viewpoints and worldviews and maybe things that have been told to us before that when we go to look at something, we already have some expectation of what we're going to find there. But the first words of the book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation 1 and 1 says it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, not the revelation of the future. This is not the revelation of what is to come. In fact, uh, anybody ever heard the word apocalypse before, right? Immediately, you might associate the word apocalypse with, the, with the, uh, the phrase end of the world. 
It's the end of all things. It's the end of the ages. It's the apocalypse. In fact, Hollywood uh, solidifies that in our mind because any word that has apocalypse in it, you know there's either going to be zombies, there's going to be earth disasters, something's going to happen to bring an end to life as we know it, a giant war with a big bomb, and, and the whole movie's going to be premised around this idea of the end of the world. But you know what the word apocalypse is? It's a Greek word for the word revelation. It's, it, it actually means to uncover something. And the Bible tells us that this is not the uncovering of the end of the world. This is the uncovering of Jesus Christ. That up until this point, Jesus has been somewhat behind the scenes. He's been behind the church. He's been working in the church, and the church has been his body. And, and the church has gone somewhat unnoticed or somewhat... Uh, maybe misrepresented, but at this point in the story, Jesus is going to be revealed. The curtain's going to be drawn back. Everything that was hidden will be now plain and evident. Everything that was, was, was behind the scenes will now be brought to the forefront. That is what the book of Revelation is, and when you read it, you've got to read it with those glasses on, because that will help you with some of the images that you see. And then what I love is the first few chapters of the book of Revelation don't necessarily deal with the things that are yet to come, but the things that are now. In fact, the, the second part of verse 1 says, to show his servants the things that soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. He sent him to show his servants the things that soon must take place. And later, in, and actually if you read it in the King James, uh, the, the, he writes, the things that must shortly come to pass. And so there's things that, that for John, it was the things that are coming to pass, but then the things that are going to happen shortly. There's kind of a double speak there. In fact, Revelation is, is full of double speak. In other words, it, it's saying two things at the same time. And uh, there's another verse later on in chapter 1 that talks about it's the, the things which are and the things which are to come. And that's the, when we start reading the book of Revelation, we've got to start with the things that are. In fact, that's where John begins because Jesus begins to reveal to John the things that are right now. And so he writes a series of letters, seven letters to the seven churches, the seven main churches at the time. And what you see here is God rebuking his church, God commending his church, and God giving his church promises. In other words, uh, every church had some kind of issue that God wanted to address. And every church was doing something good that God wanted to commend. And that every church received a promise from God in the end of all things if they held true to the, the facts. Uh, if you want to throw that first picture up there for me, NST, I'd appreciate it. It shows you a map, um, and on this map is a, uh, a list of the seven churches of Asia and uh, the ones that, to whom John was addressing his concerns to. And when it gets up there, you'll see a map with the, the different pictures and um, kind of the map of, of where these churches were located. But the first church that... that that John writes to by the instruction of the Lord is the church in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was a, a coastal city. It was a city on the Aegean Sea, 
And there was actually, it was at the mouth of the, of the Caister River that fed into the Aegean Sea. Um, and so the, here are the, the, the seven churches. There is Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, Colossae, Ephesus, and Smyrna. And these are the churches that John writes to. And the first one he deals with is Ephesus. Ephesus was one of the strongest churches of the day. It was, it was a very solid church. Um, I tried to find some kind of indication of how large the church was. And there is no um, official number in, in Bible. Uh, the Bible doesn't say how large Ephesus grew to. And church history doesn't do a very good job of recording that fact. But we do know that there were thousands that came to the Lord of Jews and Greeks in Ephesus. If you read it in the book of Acts, you'll start in Acts chapter 18 and you'll read of Paul, the apostle, going to the city of Ephesus and uh, going with two people, Aquila and Priscilla. They went together to preach the gospel and they were left there in Ephesus to continue the work that Paul had begun. They mentored a man by the name of Apollo who would later be used mightily by God to spread the gospel and uh, Apollos would, would, would work closely with Paul and with Aquila and Priscilla, and they would, they would work together to bring about the kingdom of God right there in the city of Ephesus. Paul returned and, and later re reasoned with a group of disciples that used to follow John the baptizer when, the, when Jesus was still alive. And Paul talked to these apostles of, of John the Baptist, and he had them get rebaptized because they had been baptized in uh, in unto repentance under John's ministry and and Paul I love it how Paul addresses him he says you know it's great that you got baptized but have you heard of the Holy Ghost and they said no we never even knew there was a Holy Ghost and Paul said great guess what you can now get baptized in Jesus name for the remission of your sins all your sins will be washed away and received the gift of the Holy Ghost. Paul encouraged John's disciples to be rebaptized in Jesus' name. And they received the Holy Ghost. That all happened in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus is the city, you may have heard this or read this, where, where Paul could not get to all the people that were asking for prayer. So Paul took his apron, his working apron, cut it up into squares, prayed over the cloth, and sent it to the houses of those who were sick. And the Bible says that when they received the apron strings and the, the handkerchiefs that had been prayed over, they were instantly healed and they rose from their sick bed because God honored their faith. There was nothing magical about the cloth, but Paul had had faith to pray for these cloths as though he was praying for that person. And the person receiving the cloth had faith to receive the prayer. And by faith, God healed them of their illness. This happened in Ephesus. In Ephesus, there was seven dudes that were sons of a man by the name of Sceva, a Jewish exorcist. And they tried to cast a demon out of an individual there in the city. And, and they, were, they were doing it through Paul, they, they weren't Christians, they weren't followers of Jesus, but they tried to say the magic words. They tried to say the right words, but, but they were attacked. This man with the demon overpowered them and, 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 and you know, took, took them, charged them until Paul arrived on the scene and was able to pray for the man and he was delivered. This all happened in Ephesus. Revival was so extensive in the city of Ephesus that many people burned their magic books. It was 
If you understand the days of Jesus in the first century, there was no printing presses. There was no mass production of, of literature. Everything that was readable in book form, whether it was scroll or parchment, whatever it was, was handwritten, therefore very, very expensive. Paper was not mass produced. It was, it was artistry. It was artisan material. And so if, if you had a book, it was of great value. It was financially expensive to own. And the Bible says that revival was so extensive that the people who had books that contained magic spells and incantations to pagan gods, the people of Ephesus were so convicted that God was the only God, that Jesus was the manifested Son of God, that they took these magic books and had a big citywide bonfire and burnt them. Their livelihood went up in flames. The, the, the revival was so extensive that it closed down idol shops. See, idolatry in those days was very popular because if you wanted the blessing of a god, you would have to probably erect some kind of a shrine with an idol and make sacrifices in your home. Every home had a little nook or a cove, an alcove, where you could put your family idols and you could make sacrifices to that. And that would, that would, that would give business to the silversmiths, the craftsmen of the city. They would, it would create an economy. But the revival was so extensive that people stopped buying idols at the idol shop because they no longer need to worship an idol. They worship now the one true God in whose name was Jesus. And so there was a guy by the name of Demetrius who was so angry, so upset, he took Paul and the, the, the believers of Ephesus and wanted to have them killed because they were destroying his livelihood. See, true revival will actually affect the economy of a city. Paul didn't set out to overthrow the city of Ephesus, but, but it was so extensive that it changed the economic dynamic of that local area. This is the city of Ephesus. Ephesus is located near the mouth of the Caister River. This river would have been uh, a, a center of, of trade because you're located on the water. It's easier to have access. It's easier to to get in and get out. Ships can come and go. It can be a, a place of commerce. It's easier to sail than it was to travel by foot. It was a, a much more economic way of transporting goods and materials. So Ephesus became a port city. But it was the Caister River that ultimately became the city's downfall. They had, uh, they had to routinely dredge this, this river and this, this port because of the, the area, the, the material of the, the land that was surrounding was very silty. It was a, a, a very loose sediment that when it rained, it easily flowed in and kind of clogged up the river. And so they would come by and they would continuously be trying to expand the bay. And, and you can see it making it wider. Most of the time, at, I think at the beginning of Ephesus, they began here. And they had to keep dredging it back and back and back until finally... The, the river dried up completely and they were tired of, of trying to, to do it. So Ephesus basically shut down because the river had clogged up. So much silt had, had flown in from the, the swamplands and the agricultural areas that had flown into the river and had clogged up the river and was no longer a port city. It was no longer able to, to uh, receive ships and, 
and, and things. They had to constantly be dredging it out to help the ships be able to pass through. Ephesus in its days of glory was known for its temples. There was a beautiful temple, if you want to go to that next picture, of uh, a beautiful temple erected to Artemis and Diana. They were one of the, this is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world at its time. In fact, if you go to the next picture, the, the ruins of this temple are still there today. You can go to Ephesus in Turkey and you can visit the old temple, the place where they worshipped Diana and Artemis. There was a lot of political and educational and commercial things that were, were important about the city of Ephesus. It was a, a city of trade, as I mentioned. It was a city of education. It was a city of, of commerce and, and politics. And everything seemed to work together. It was a beautiful city. There was a great big amphitheater. I don't know if there's a picture of that, maybe in the first, the first slide. A great big amphitheater were shows and, and, and all kinds of things. This is a mock-up of what the city looked like and what it was, what it was known for. And this great big amphitheater where you could go and watch a show, maybe uh, some kind of a play or uh, any kind of sporting event might be played in this large amphitheater. But Ephesus had its troubles. As I mentioned, the river constantly clogged up and they had to keep dredging it and pulling it apart to, to keep it running smoothly. The church also had troubles and difficulties. The church had to constantly deal with false teachers that would come in and try to convert them back to Judaism. Oftentimes, Paul would struggle. You can read this through the book of Acts. Paul would go in and set up a church in a new city, and there was a group of people that liked to follow him around. They were what they called Judaizers. They, were, they believed that Jesus was real, but that they should still obey all the Jewish laws and keep all the Old Testament commandments exactly like they did before. And, 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 and so the, this group would come in and say, Paul is teaching false doctrine, and they would try to undo everything Paul did to set up the church. There was various pastoral issues, gossip, sexual immorality, marital problems that faced the church of Ephesus. Yet with all of this going on, Jesus tells John, I want you to write a letter to this church in Ephesus. And Revelation 2 verse 1 says, The angel of the church of Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And here we have the first of many images in the book of Revelation. One of many images. And the image is someone who's holding seven stars in his right hand. Every word in this verse is significant. The stars represent the seven churches. John is writing to the seven churches. And he's talking to the angel of the church. And uh, the word angel there is actually from the Greek that word means messenger. So he's talking to the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And uh, so that means your pastor's an angel. I'll just <laughs> not, not in the... Literal sense, right? Okay? Now, this is no cult. I'm not, I'm not, there's no Kool-Aid. It's just coffee at the end of the service. Those are Tim Hortons donuts. There's nothing special about them. Okay? I'm not a real angel. But I'm a messenger to the church in Ajax. 
And so the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Anytime you see the phrase right hand, it means a place of power, authority, favor, blessing. So the church is in the right hand of Jesus. And he who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So the first image is one of he's got the whole world in his hands. Well, the song is better. He's got all the churches in his hands. See, God deals with the world through the church. God deals with the world through the church. He has the church in his hand, and the church is to influence the world. The church is meant to impact the world. The church is meant to pray for kings and governors and rulers that the peace of God may rest on their local area. The, the, God deals with the world through the, the arms of the church. He holds the church in his right hand. And then the image changes from someone, a great big hand holding all seven churches to the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. In other words, the church is also not just a star, but a lamp. It's not just something that affects the time and space and the continuum of nature, but it's something that's personal and uh, common. It's something that's in the home. It's something that's meant to be wherever you go, the lampstand went with you. See, in those days, there weren't street lamps wherever people went. You didn't have electric lights that you flipped on in your home. If you wanted light in your house, you had to light the lampstand in your house. You had to light the lamp. And so the image of a church is not just something that's big and impacting the, the, the cosmos and the nature, which the church is big and it impacts many things, but the church is also something within the home. The church is something that's local. The church is something that's on the street. The church is something that's in the house. The church is something that can be felt, can be touched, can be seen and can be a part of. And there's two images. One, Jesus is holding the stars, but Jesus is also walking among the lampstands. Jesus is checking the lampstands to make sure they have enough oil in the lamp. Oil is a type of the Spirit of God. Do they have their wicks trimmed? Are they maintaining themselves? Is there trouble with the lamp? There was someone who walked among the lampstands to make sure they were working properly. That's Jesus. Jesus not only holds the church, but he maintains the church. Jesus cares for the church. Jesus is there for the church. Jesus said to the church of Ephesus, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. Jesus said, you, you've passed the test. When false teachers came into your church and tried to preach a different doctrine, I, I, you held to the word of God. You held fast to the teaching of scripture and you found those false preachers to be false and didn't listen to them. I know your works. You are enduring patiently amidst the persecution, amidst the struggles, the local struggles, the economic struggles, the political struggles of your area. You are holding and enduring patiently. You're bearing up for my name's sake. You're taking one for the team. See, I want you to know that Jesus knows and takes note of what you do when you're in the church. When you pray, I want you to know that Jesus hears you. Don't ever believe the lie that says Jesus can't hear your prayers when you call on his name. When you pray, he hears. When you worship, he receives it. When you read his word, he'll speak to you. When you fast, he'll notice and he'll help you through it. When you cry, 
He catches your tears in a bottle and he stores them up. He takes note of every tear that falls. When you're hurting, he feels with you for he's touched, the Bible says, with the very feeling of your infirmity. When you reach out to him, he reaches back and comforts you. When, he, when you intercede for others, uh, he steps in, uh, puts his arm around you and prays with you for the souls of lost men and women that you are close to. When you give, uh, he receives the offering uh, and God will never be in debt to anybody. If you give willingly of your heart uh, and from your spirit, the Bible says that God will give back pressed down, uh, measured uh, and shaken together and running over. God will repay. God will not be in debt to you. Whatever you do for the Lord, it will last uh, the tests of time. I want you to hear that this morning. Let the church be encouraged. Uh, Jesus has taken note of you. He walks among you when nobody else recognizes. And sometimes you may do something for the kingdom of God and feel unnoticed. You may, may do something even for the church and feel unrecognized. Uh, hear me today. Jesus is walking amidst the lampstand of the church. Uh, he's walking in and out of the aisles and in and out of the chairs this morning. Uh, and he notices you. He notices what you're struggling with with. He notices what you're dealing with. He notices where you are and what you're dealing with this morning. I know your works, he said. They were doctrinally sound. They, they were solid in the doctrine. Paul had, uh, had advised them. He said, pay, a, pay careful attention to yourselves. In Acts 20, verse 28, he said, pay close attention to yourselves and the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Care for the church of God which he obtained with his blood. Paul warned them in verse 29, he said, I know that when I leave after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So Paul told the elders of the church, be wary. Fierce wolves are coming in to stir up the flock. The devil never sleeps. The devil never sleeps. He's constantly biting at the heels of the people of the church to get them bitter and, and distracted and, and focused on the wrong things. And, and, and he's trying to separate the weak and the, the sick and trying to pull. Don't ever let anything pull you out of the church. Don't let anything separate you. The easiest way the devil can destroy you is to separate you from the church. You look at nature. It's revealed in nature. You look at the way a lion hunts. He goes after the weak and the young, the old and the infirm, those who are struggling and lagging behind the, the, the pack. And just look it up. You can find a water buffaloes are my favorite because they're, they're all in a pack. A lion will come up and separate the one, but the whole pack will circle back around and attack that one lion and they'll come after him and they'll they'll rescue the one who was broken away and they'll surround them and come that's a beautiful image of the church the bible says the devil is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour he looks for those who are on the edge and on the fringe but if you get into the middle of the pack he can't separate you he can't attack you you stay close because the wolves are going to come in and try to separate and divide and pull apart don't let that happen to you Paul sent a young man by the name of Timothy back to the city of Ephesus to pastor that city. Timothy was young. And, and Paul writes a book to the Ephesians. You can read it. It's called the book of Ephesus or to the, the Ephesians, the book to the Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesian church. He also writes to Timothy in two letters, to 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. To read more history of that, Jesus 
was moving through Paul to write to his church to, to encourage them. Keep preaching that Jesus came to save the lost. Keep preaching the blessing of salvation. Keep preaching about the unity of the church. Keep preaching about walking in love with one another. Paul urged the Ephesians and urged Timothy to, to make sure that wives, husbands, children, parents, employees, and employers were treating each other with respect and with love and with dignity and in a way that pleased God. Keep praying. Paul urged the church to keep praying. Paul church urged the church of the Ephesians to watch out for the adversary. And, and watch out for spiritual forces that would come in and try to divide the church. He told them, don't wrestle with flesh and blood. Don't get angry with one another. But make sure that you know that every for every issue and, and problem, there is definitely a spiritual force behind it that's trying to divide and separate and, and afflict the church. Don't let that be the thing, but hold on to the doctrine. Hold on to truth. Hold on to each other and love one another. He urged the church at Ephesus to believe in the oneness of God, that there is one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. There is one God and one Father of all who is above all and in all and through you all. He urged the church at Ephesus to be servants to one another. He urged them to follow Jesus, to let the gifts of the Spirit move and operate in the church, to beware of false teaching, and the importance of studying the Word of God was paramount to the Ephesians. God wanted his church to be solid. One thing that the church did well is they hated the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Notice they didn't hate the Nicolaitans. They hated their doctrine. You can hate what someone teaches and still love the person that's teaching it. You can hate the false words that are coming out of somebody's mouth and still love the person that's speaking. Paul, the, the Lord commended the church at Ephesus. He says, you don't hate them, but you hate what they're saying. What they're saying is, is reprehensible to you because it's false, but you still love them. Nicholas and his followers were, were, were a, a group of people that were, they were working to divide the church. They, they declared that Christians, since they were sinners saved by grace, they could live any way they wanted. They could sin and, and, and live apart from the grace of God and worship idols and live uh, loose lives and drink whatever, eat whatever, do whatever, no big deal because God would always forgive them. And the Lord said to the church at Ephesus, I love that you hate that doctrine that they're teaching, that it's okay to do whatever you want. No, you still have to live holy. You still have to live righteously. And, and the Lord said, you have held on to all of these things, but in all of these things, in all these things you've done right, you have left your first love. How is that possible? How is it possible to hold on to all of that good teaching, all of that good preaching, all of that Bible and love and all of the oneness of God and gifts of the Spirit and, and the works of God, yet you lose your love, your first love. Because it's very easy to transition from relationship to religion. It's so easy to start asking the question, what do, what's the minimum requirements I need to do to be saved? Let me just, because I, I want to play with the world, but I also want to go to church. I want to do my, my religious duty, but I want to also enjoy some of the things in the world. And it becomes more of a religion and less of a relationship. 
the fight to maintain sound teaching of the word, they had lost the love of the one that had called them out of the world and called them close to him. They were going through the motions. In fact, Paul wrote to Timothy in his second letter and he says, there is people there that will act religious, but they reject the power that can make them godly. Stay away from people like that. It's so interesting to me that every one of these churches, there was a city problem that was mirrored in the church. For Ephesus, the big problem was the Caister River. It constantly got clogged up with silt and they had to dredge the silt out of the river to keep it flowing, to keep it running, to keep the economy going. And over time, it got clogged up and they had to remove it. Eventually, they repositioned and abandoned the city of Ephesus altogether because they could not keep up with the, the dredging of the river. That sounds a lot like Christianity. Because in our enthusiasm to do what's right and to do what's godly, we can let the silt of the world flood and clog up the river. We can even let the silt of, of, of obeying laws and, and keeping straight and narrow, we can let that flow in and stop up the flow of the river. But the Lord told the, the church, there's three things you need to do to clear the river. You can let the world flow in and slowly it'll creep in. Slowly silt will build up over time. Slowly, you'll get numb to the love you had for God and it'll become a duty and not a relationship. It'll become a religious practice but not a loving relationship thing. So there's three things you've got to do. He said, remember from where you are fallen. Remember the kind of love you had for me and the kind of relationship you had for me and repent. That word gets a lot of bad press. The word repent simply means to turn around. Think of it like you go to the, the shooting range and you pick up your, your, your weapon of choice, whether it's bow and arrow or gun, and you shoot the target and you miss. The word repent just means try again and aim a little bit better. Change the aim. If you're pointing the gun in the wrong direction, turn around and point it in the right direction. If you're shooting for something, try to hit the mark. Repent simply means to, to try again, but to turn back towards the actual target. Remember the way you used to love God. Remember the way you used to follow God. Remember the way you used to pray. Remember the way you used to worship. Remember, take stock. Take inventory of your life. Be brutally honest with yourself. Ask yourself, do I pray the way I used to pray? Do I read the word like I used to read the word? Do I fast like I used to fast? Do I, do I give the way I used to give? And if so, great. If not, why not? What's going on with me? Take some time and do some inventory on yourself. Take the, the shovel and clear some of the silt out of life because life has a tendency to just back up into your river and back up into the flow of prayer and back up eventually, you know, prayer becomes less important because you've got an appointment, you've got this, you've got that to do. And the silt of life clogs up the river. And God said, just remember, all you have to do is take a little bit of time and reflect. Am I where I used to be? Am I further? Am I better? Am I progressing in my walk with God? Or have I stagnated? Have I become 
complacent and make a repentance move. Take a sharp break with evil practices. And then he said, do the works. Take action. Make a plan and keep it consistent. An unknown author made an observation about those who lose their first love. And he said, there's 12 things that happen to you, Sister Bryson, if you would come, that let you know that you've lost your first love with God. Verse 1, he said, when my delight in the Lord is no longer as great as my delight in someone or something else, I've lost my first love. When my soul does not long for times of rich fellowship in God's word or in prayer, I have left my first love. When my thoughts during leisure moments do not reflect upon God, I have left my first love. When I claim to be only human and easily give in to those things I know displease the Lord, I have left my first love. When I do not willingly and cheerfully give to God's work or to the needs of others, I have left my first love. When I cease to treat every Christian brother as I would treat the Lord Jesus himself, I have left my first love. When I view commandments of Christ as restrictions to my happiness rather than expressions of his love, I have left my first love. When I inwardly strive for acclaim from this world or, or congratulations from my worldly friends rather than the approval of God, I have left my first love. When I inwardly strive, when I, I'm sorry, when I fail to make Christ or his word known because I fear rejection. I have left my first love. When I refuse to give up in an activity which I know is offending a weaker brother, I have left my first love. When I become complacent to sinful conditions around me, I have left my first love. When I am unable to forgive another person for offending me, I have left my first love. Sometimes we need to take inventory. Sometimes we need to take stock. Are things flowing on the river of my walk with God easily? Or do ships often get stopped up way back? Are the blessings of God being stopped up in my life because the river is backed up with a lot of silt, a lot of distractions, a lot of worldly things? Maybe it's time to go to the Lord and dig out the river. Maybe it's time to find a place of prayer. If we would hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, God's pleased with what you've done right. This isn't a you've done everything wrong and you're terrible. No, he, he's pleased with your hold on the doctrine. He's pleased with your, your desire for good and righteous things. But sometimes we leave our first love simply because we let life back up into the river and clog up our relationship with God. He can't flow down the river of our life very easily. There's distractions, offenses. All kinds of things can build up. Take inventory this morning. Take inventory of your walk with God. In fact, I would encourage us this morning, if we could take the next 10 minutes to just take inventory. There's no better